Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Bryce Gartland, Hospital Group President and Co-Chief of Clinical Operations for Emory Healthcare in Atlanta, where he joined the faculty practicing hospital medicine back in 2005. I've been lucky to have his friendship for many years now. Bryce, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for the invitation, Tom. You know, you've been a great supporter of our research over the years, and I remember you were particularly interested in one of our studies around intrasystem variation in resource consumption. As healthcare systems have grown, we've seen variation actually increase rather than decrease. What do you think gets in the way of health systems adopting more consistent clinical pathways? And have you seen anything that's worked particularly well at Emory? Thanks, Tom, for the question. And obviously a complex one. And so let me kind of touch base first on what I think drives some of the inconsistencies in practice. And then I'm happy to share some examples here from Emory. You know, I really don't believe that there is a single cause. This is very multifactorial in nature and comes from a variety of different issues. There's this kind of art of practice versus the science of practice. And oftentimes we'll see that providers tend to focus more on kind of the art aspect, thinking that they happen to know more or better than necessarily protocols. So how do we drive further protocol utilization, standardization within the systems would be one issue. The second is, I'll call it a lack of technical and clinical practice standardization. Healthcare systems have invested tremendously in electronic health records, yet truly as an industry, we haven't realized the full potential benefits of those. As you think about healthcare systems, how do you better leverage electronic health records to really drive standardization across a system? And then clinical standardization at scale is incredibly difficult. It requires commitment, inclusive of potential changes of the roles of care team members, right? Who's following the protocol in various aspects? Who's responsible for carrying the protocol? And some of those job responsibilities could change, which is very difficult. I've also seen as healthcare systems, particularly as they've gotten large, historical disparities in resources across a given system. Some hospitals may happen to have more cardiology experts that are focused in on advanced heart failure, whereas other hospitals, even within the same system, those same congestive heart failure patients may be cared for largely by hospitalists, internists, or family practice providers. And so you ask yourself, are these providers really operating under a care plan protocol that's developed and disseminated across a system by those content experts? Do all locations across a system have the right support teams in place to ultimately execute upon those protocols? Or do we know when someone is diverting off of a correct care plan and may require a referral to more subspecialty or tertiary care? You know, thinking about the resources and that clinical standardization and dissemination across an entire system. I think one of the more recent challenges that's developed is, I'll call it workforce burden, especially with the pandemic. A recent McKenzie study shows that roughly 18% of the healthcare workforce has left the industry. And at the same point in time, we have an aging population with roughly 10,000 individuals a day becoming Medicare age, which is driving an increase in demand and complexity of care. As that burden comes onto our workforce, how are we able to really carry forward on that standardization with just the overall demand burden that's coming on? Can we find ways to really kind of work smarter, not harder, when caring for more individuals and a better standardized, higher quality of care with ultimately less resource consumption? The last thing that I've also seen that as systems have grown through mergers and acquisitions, at times some of those acquisitions come with commitments to services and practices within a specific facility or community 
that's not always necessarily in the best interest of standardization. As systems have grown and merged, how do we keep that need for standardization, that need for better quality of care front and center, recognizing that you've got that tug at the same point in time with regards to trying to keep care local where relevant in those communities that are becoming assimilated as part of a larger system. So maybe to pivot over from there and talk a little bit about Emory successes and you know some of the things that we've been able to achieve and are still working on. I have a great example of this with our Emory Center for Critical Care. We're fortunate that we have a single standard for critical care across our entire system. So regardless of which one of our 11 hospitals that a patient may happen to be in, they're actually cared for by the same group of critical care intensivists as well as advanced practice providers. That team really came together early on to establish a vent protocol that was really disseminated and carried out across all of our ICUs, which really afforded patients that had COVID and ultimately required ventilation to receive the exact same protocols, regardless of what facility they were in. That resulted in improved standardization of care for patients, as well as really leading national practice. In fact, a couple of our faculty members really helped establish the national guidelines with regards to COVID ventilator care. And ultimately, it was reflected in outcomes where Emory was really national best practice when it came to outcomes for patients with COVID that ultimately required ventilatory support. We've also tried to structure in some of this in what we call our clinical practice council. This is actually a collective group of care team members from physicians to advanced practice providers to infection prevention and nursing staff from across the system that are really charged with establishing standards for all of Emory Healthcare. Our clinical practice council actually answers to the patient quality uh, committee of our board. So if by chance there's something that comes up of where somebody says, hey, you know, We don't believe we can standardize around that. Ultimately, that has to be answered back to the board or governance level in terms of, you know, why that is not the case in terms of coming together from a standard. So that has been an effective structure for us as well in terms of trying to drive standardization and reduce variation. The last one, we're kind of in the thrust of it right now, uh, is we're going through a wholesale EMR conversion. And that really gave us a tremendous opportunity to reset in terms of things that we had allowed as a system to exist in the past. We had two electronic medical record systems based on facilities that had recently become part of Emory Healthcare. And even across that, there were probably four or five ways of doing any kind of individual item. And so with kind of governance structure that we put in place, it really gave us an opportunity to arrive at one single standard way of doing things and ultimately, you know, hopefully making significant improvement in terms of standardization of clinical care, as well as overall workflows. That was a recent opportunity that we did not want to miss in terms of really helping to support that reduction and variation and ultimately improvement in quality and safety of care. So you put your finger on one of the issues, I think, that makes it difficult when systems form or when they expand. You refer to them as promises or reassurances. When we come together, we're not going to insist that you guys do things the way we do. And those kind of promises made during a merger can get in the way down the road. And then you've just got the sheer mathematics of if you've got more observations, you're going to get more variation And so the bar gets higher for you as a clinician trying to standardize those practices. And then you've got to deal with those cultural issues, right? Absolutely. And I would not underestimate the cultural issues. I think that's actually oftentimes one of the least appreciated component of really going through an integration of disparate systems coming together. Can they really come together from a cultural practice? Do people really understand what that means in terms of standardization, which means that either one or more of us are going to have to change to ultimately have better outcomes as a cohesive unit? 
that's a good way to move us into kind of another element of system development and system growth. And we might look at it in the context of what I would refer to as another largely unmet promise of health systems over the course of the last 10 to 20 years in terms of rationalizing where we do what. We still see a fairly significant prevalence of low acuity services happening in tertiary medical centers. We use the term right care, right place, right time rather loosely, and yet our tertiary centers are jam full and we've got lower acuity cases being taken care of in settings where we might have been able to do that in a less expensive and a less acute setting. But more troubling to me, Bryce, is the prevalence of low-volume surgical programs in high-risk procedures and the number of programs around the country that are operating below even published proficiency thresholds in the medical literature. What do you think is so difficult in terms of health systems kind of rationalizing the number of locations that they do high-risk procedures? Oh, great question, Tom. And I've always appreciated our debates over the years on this one. You know, and from my perspective, this isn't really a question solely about what are healthcare systems doing or that healthcare systems can solve this. In many ways, from my perspective, this is a symptom of our American healthcare financing mechanism of cross-subsidization. And it's one of the predicaments that we now find ourselves with. You ask yourself, right, why do systems preserve high-risk, low-volume surgical programs? And both of us know that with the higher case mix index that comes with those, they are more highly reimbursed, generally with higher margins, which in turn helps offset the losses any individual hospital may happen to experience. There's additional items that come into play, right, in terms of retaining volumes within one system and keeping care local, which, you know, I think is important oftentimes for the communities that they're serving. Kind of brings me to at least one of the first key points, which is as a nation, if we're really going to fix this issue, we need reimbursement systems that ultimately recognize and value the behaviors we want to encourage. And in this instance, that includes improving parity between surgical and medical DRGs, right? If that parity didn't exist, people would not necessarily design those systems or would have necessarily some of those disincentives for doing things different ways. The second key point, while I tend not to be a fan of really high regulations, we do have some examples of how regulations can work in avoiding these situations. And I think the best example I can come up with is a transplant. In transplant, a program that has low volume and frankly, any poor outcomes is really at risk and likely to be dropped by Medicare, CMS, managed care companies. And that's never a fun experience for any healthcare system to go through. Absent reimbursement and or regulatory changes, what can healthcare systems do or where are we at at this moment in time? Number one, as I think it's all important for us to recognize that programming is notoriously very difficult. Taking programs or services out of a community, patients oftentimes need to drive further. There's the potential of loss of jobs in a community. There's also kind of that back to that culture component, that identity aspect of things. And so how do healthcare systems address those potential barriers to taking on aspects of programming? I think we're at a unique moment in time, you know, given the financial as well as workforce headwinds that we're experiencing in this industry, it is going to push more systems into taking on programming. Unfortunately, that often involves some of the more margin challenge services versus focusing on some of that higher risk kind of low volume surgical programs that we're referencing on. But I think this is a real opportunity for us. 
And from a system standpoint, I think one of the most important things people need to do is focus in on aggregate performance, right? If you focus in on a given hospital within a market versus a system in whole, I think people are missing where there may be opportunities in terms of redundancy, not only of operating expenses that's going into place, but also capital investments. Do you really need multiple MRIs? I'm just using radiology as an example on that versus the ability to really kind of consolidate down to one. And so I think systems are now at a moment in time where more systems are in a, I hate to say it, a better position to actually take on something here that is notoriously difficult to. And I think there's a real opportunity in terms of ultimately improving the quality and safety of care that our patients receive, as well as a more sustainable financial model for healthcare in total. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I blame the payment system more than anything else for the proliferation of surgical programs, for the intense economic pressure on small to mid-sized healthcare providers to be in lines of business that everybody would probably agree that they shouldn't be were it not for the fact that in order to keep their lights on, they're chasing the revenue in the payment system that we have. And I think that misguided financing system is also contributing to another thing that's really front and center in the country's mindset right now, Bryce. Our latest research focuses on the country's, what I would think is an appropriate discomfort with health disparities. But yet we have this seeming acceptance of a payment system that makes it virtually impossible not to have disparities. I don't think we can have the private to public price disparity that we have and then hope to eliminate health disparities in the same breath. What do you think? Tom, I completely agree with you, other than I may change the word price to actually reimbursement, because to me, it's really that focus more on reimbursement policies and practices. In many ways, the COVID pandemic for the last three years, I keep referring to it as the great accelerator, right? Whatever was happening in healthcare from the building workforce shortages to instability in healthcare financing to the very important issue of healthcare disparities that you raise. Basically, all of those things were accelerated and vulnerabilities that were present have just simply been further exposed. And I think it's important for all of us, in particular, public oftentimes doesn't realize this in terms of really how did we in U.S. healthcare get to this point? And to me, I think it's important to kind of go back to that history lesson and understand, you know, how we developed a system that was so heavily dependent upon cross-subsidization, right? We had the Wage Stabilization Act of 1942. As they were dealing with inflation at that point in time, it created the rise of employer-based health care. Um, and I think that was something, at least my history lesson and understanding was intended to be short-term, but it became part of our American system. Healthcare systems, in turn, in general, lose money on roughly 60, 70% of the care that they provide. And that largely falls in the category of the public or governmental-based reimbursement as well as the uninsured individuals. And healthcare systems, in turn, really try to make it up on that balance of 30% of managed care to ultimately offset those losses and maintain a margin that allows for programmatic reinvestment. So ultimately, this type of reimbursement system drove the disparities that you're referencing into. And now that system of cross-subsidization is seriously at risk, right? We're seeing an increase in shift from commercial to governmental insurance. We've had high inflationary environment, which, you know, when revenues usually lag by two, three plus years in terms of catch up, it really exposes a lot. And I think one of the other interesting statistics I've been reading about lately is just talking about the largest growth in bad debt is actually now from the insured, right? Patient liability after insurance. 
as employers have increasingly transitioned their covered lives onto those high deductible health plans, it's much more of a defined contribution versus a defined benefit, which in turn jeopardizes kind of that historic healthcare system area of cross-subsidization. And to the point that you're raising, if we ultimately want to have a healthcare ecosystem that prevents and addresses disparities in turn, we really need reimbursement systems that bring parity and incent the behaviors that we're interested in, such as equivalent access to healthcare. And so I think it's going to be very interesting over the next, call it two to five years, to see what direction some of this goes. And I think we're at a momentous time in American healthcare. And I think it's going to be uh, very interesting to see what happens. I'm right there with you. Our most recent study actually imagines a time in the not too distant future when we have rate parity between public and private payers. And in fact, what if we had global spending budgets so that at the Emory Health System was given, you know, a, a large sum of money and asked to take care of all of the healthcare needs that surrounded it without talking about capitation in 1980s concepts, something new and different. Right. There's an aspect we've been talking about kind of more of the reimbursement policy and kind of the, you know, behaviors that it either incense or disincense. But I think the other really critical question is, how are we as a nation culturally preparing for that, right? Because if you move to some of those things that you were highlighting, mm -hmm. there's some pretty significant cultural gaps in terms of what would America be willing to accept or not accept. Well, I think that's right. I think if we decide that we're going to use our resources to take care of everybody, then those who enjoy the most advantageous access and experience are likely to either see that accessibility and that experience come down a bit, or if it's America and they decide that they're going to pay extra for it, then they will have to probably reach into their pocket a bit. But you're right. The common denominator wouldn't be the best that we have or the fastest that we have. It would probably be somewhere in the middle, and that, that's good for some and not so great for others. You're absolutely right. As a hospitalist, Bryce, you probably saw more of the medical manifestations of what I would call the challenging social determinants of health firsthand. If I said you could fix one or two things and improve the well-being of these vulnerable populations— what would you change based on your clinical experience? Great question, Tom. First of all, too oftentimes, many of the solutions that have come forward have really been trying to solve health inequities or disparities, uh, I'll say from a short-sighted perspective, uh, right? You're putting a Band-Aid on a problem. You know, these are incredibly complex issues. And from my perspective, the solutions really require investments that have a much longer-term ROI as well as kind of some of that, you know, significant cultural change that you and I were just talking about. You know, two items really kind of jump out to me. First of all, I'm incredibly passionate behind food insecurity and really access to, to healthy nutrition. Poor nutrition and uh, food insecurity, it impacts so many variables from early childhood education and participation and success all the way through development of chronic diseases, right? Whether you're talking diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, MI, stroke, et cetera. And so from my perspective, taking on some serious long-term investments to, to really address food insecurities and healthier choice in nutrition, I think would go incredibly far in terms of addressing some of those social determinants and health disparities that arise because of those. 
The second one is I would really push for significant change in terms of supporting elder care and better engaging the family unit. That aging population that we talked about and increasingly coming to the hospitals, you know, one of the things I've noted over the past several decades is how many of our elderly patients don't have the right social support around them uh, from a family standpoint, et cetera. And how many families really became comfortable with healthcare systems stepping in to help fill those gaps that results in longer length of stay, higher post-acute care utilization, and probably poorer care and increase in hospitalizations. So what could we do as a nation to really strengthen some of those elder care programs, recognizing that investment actually pays dividends in terms of uh, costlier um, hospital resource utilization and could likely improve uh, quality of care as well as safety of care, I think that is a second item I would very, very much push for. You just touched on something that is a core passion of mine. I I wrote an essay recently in which I reflected on the Peace Corps. And during the Kennedy administration, the advent of the generation probably just a half step ahead of mine. Uh, They were a little older than I am. But if you think about it, the generation that formed the Peace Corps is now in their twilight years. And you refer to the elder care issue. I actually use the term elder core, kind of like the Peace Corps. And I wondered out loud, what if we as a country asked folks my age and a little bit older to volunteer and to help people, kind of their yearlings, folks their own age, folks that get the jokes that they tell, they raise their kids in about the same time period, have a lot in common. They listen to the same music growing up. And now some of them are still healthy and vibrant and others are struggling. And I I just wonder if as a country, we couldn't make better use of our elder population rather than just kind of saying, thanks a lot. Now you're retired. We'll see you later. What do you think about this notion of re-engaging the elder population, at least the fit and still vibrant ones. I think it would give them a purpose and keep them young. I think that's a great example of, you know, how could we mobilize people to create a tighter sense of community, right? If you don't have a direct family unit, how can we replicate that from a societal perspective? Mm -hmm. And actually, just listening to you share that story, I could reflect on two items just over the past couple of weeks here. So one is uh, actually my grandmother, when she was getting elderly and my grandfather passed away, she was living uh, independently on her own down in Florida. And we were always one phone call away of having to jump on an airplane to go down and rush to see her with, you know, hospitalization, inability to care for herself, et cetera. And she fought us tooth and nail. Ultimately, I went down on a trip to Florida and said, okay, you know, Grandmare, it's time for you to come up and be with us. There was a little bit of, I'll say, kicking and screaming with that. But ultimately, when she was into kind of a elderly community and had social connection and that sense of community fabric, she flourished. The person that we had seen start to diminish all of a sudden came back. Her quality of life improved. Her engagement in conversations improved. Her healthcare quality improved. And so how could we replicate that? Another one was actually just yesterday at at dinner. My father was sharing a story with my brother's in-laws who have recently moved into a retirement community. About 60% of the community is using walkers, but 40% are more independent and they happen to be earlier in age and they're in their early 80s, but are more mobile and more capable. And all of a sudden, 
my brother's father-in-law has become, uh, I'll call it the doer, you know, of, of the community of where he's able to go run errands and help fix, you know, changing a light bulb and other stuff along those lines. And so if people don't happen to have multi-generational in the same household type of experience or support network, how could we potentially engage our elderly community within itself with the right societal support to better help support healthy aging with one another, right? In terms of social connection, helping out one another, bringing to appointments, et cetera. hundred percent. Given your clinical specialty and the fact that you will have dealt more with end-of-life care than any of the rest of us ever want to deal with, I just think we've got an untapped resource in the country of yearlings of folks who are in those twilight times and it's a resource that I think the country could tap into if we put our mind to it. Absolutely agree. Bryce, before we close, I always like to ask a question that allows listeners to get a sense for our guests more on a personal level. And I was thinking about asking you about having been a talented soccer player, but I've got a note here from your neighbors in Atlanta asking me to find out what's up with the chickens in your yard. Too funny you ask, Tom. I've got three wonderful kids and a beautiful wife of 20 plus years. And over the summer, we were sitting at the dinner table and my 15-year-old, 15 going on 40, who wants to be an environmental lawyer, says to me at the dinner table, Dad, I want a cat. Early, you can't get a cat. You know, I don't like cats. We're not going to get a cat. She turns to me and says, well, great, because I actually didn't want a cat. I want chickens. <laughs> Going on to, to see a PowerPoint presentation in terms of all the reasons that we need to have chickens. And so I, I caved in. <laughs> Who knew that you could actually order chickens through the mail? They come about one day old. They get rush delivery from the postal service. And uh, my wife and, and kids had actually bought a coop online. And once the coop came, we realized that the coop was probably too small for the six chickens that we have. And so we ended up building over about three weekends a, I'll call it a, a penthouse coop in the backyard. So we're, we're now the proud owners of some chickens. Now, unfortunately, the math on this one, the return on investment, Tom, does not pan out. So I'll give you some rough math. Uh, with the amount that has cost me in labor and time in terms of building this coop out, is that the, the chickens, six of them, have to produce on average uh, six eggs per week for 10 years to equate to uh, an $8 dozen of eggs. Unfortunately, chickens, I'm told, only produce eggs for about uh, three years or so. So I think I'm upside down on this one. But uh, the, the experience <laughs> with the kids and, and with the family has, has been priceless and well worth it. I wonder what the accountants would call a salvage value on a chicken might be after it's fully depreciated. Tom, either which way, I'm upside down on this one. <laughs> uh, it's a great story. And we'll have to find out about soccer another time because I just couldn't pass that one up. It was too good to leave on the table. Perfect. Well, Bryce, as a leader that is very likely to have an extraordinary impact on healthcare for many years to come, we're counting on you. And I'm more in that elder core time frame than I want to believe. Probably a few years left before I have to start taking the light bulbs out in the uh, retirement community, but we're counting on you for the next 20 or so years. And we really appreciate everything that you're doing, not just in Atlanta, but nationally to make healthcare better. And I can't thank you enough for making time for us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Tom, and always appreciate your strategic thought partnership in terms of helping solve some big 
problems in healthcare and some daunting issues. But, you know, I'm confident coming together, we can help make this a much, much better system that delivers higher quality and better value. In the end, it's the system all of us are going to be dependent upon. Well, thanks a million, Bryce. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.